Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news plus insight and analysis of the beautiful game. I'm Duncan Castles and I'm delighted to say we have a debutant on the Transfer Window podcast this week. Um, his name is Philippe Beauclair. He is the England correspondent for France football for Eurosport. He is a contributor to Josimar magazine, which is a one we've mentioned on many occasions on the Transfer Window podcast. He's the author of superb biographies of Eric Cantona and Thierry Henry. He is a musician. He is an all-round lad of parts, and we are delighted to have you on the podcast, Philippe. Thank you very much, and I hope I, I it, it probably will go go downwards from from there on but thank you very much for your kind welcome very happy to be in your company <laughs> i have um i have some good news for listeners to start with which is that um the transfer window podcast has been shortlisted for podcast of the year at the scottish press awards so um just like to thank our many expert contributors our editors uh, but most of all you the listeners for um, putting the transfer window in contention for a little bit of Scottish silverware, which um, <laughs> as, as a supporter of uh, Dundee United in Scotland, I'm no longer accustomed to, I'm afraid. Let's start with what looks to me like being the imminent uh, suspension at best of European football seasons across the board. We've already seen Serie A be forced into suspension um, essentially by the players demanding that happen. Um, today we had news that uh, the Real Madrid squad had been placed in self-isolation because of um, uh, uh, a case of uh, coronavirus um, infection at um, a member of their basketball club who who train at the same uh, training facilities, and that has caused La Liga to go into suspension. Um, Danish football is in the same state. We have uh, football being played behind closed doors in Austria, France, Germany, Greece and Poland, and probably some other countries that I've neglected to mention. We have today the news that three Leicester City footballers have been forced into self-isolation. Philippe, how do you see this panning out? Um, the the UK government briefed on Monday, put a statement out saying that they they felt there was uh, no rationale for um, suspending sports events in general, football in particular, this week. How long do you think that position can can hold out, given the the the, the speed at which coronavirus is spreading, not just across Europe but across the globe? I think that uh, by the time we finished recording this and you edit it and it's put online, it might have happened. Uh, I, I might be a bit flippant when I say that, but I think it's only a question of uh, 
days, if not hours. I mean, you can, I can add some, some other countries to your list, by the way, Duncan. I mean, Bosnia has done it, uh, suspended competition. Portugal has done it. Switzerland has done it, of course. And uh, Belgium has done it. And the Netherlands have done it literally like a few minutes ago. It decided that uh, after they had decided the games would be played behind closed doors, they decided to go one step further and, and to suspend the, the league, the Eredivisie. Uh, as, as from now. So it, it, it's a kind of snowballing effect. I think everybody's coming you know, suddenly realizing that the extent of the problem we're all facing and that uh, a suspension of the Premier League uh, after this weekend, you know, the games are played behind closed doors, is something that uh, I think is inescapable and probably the right thing and perhaps should have been done quite a while ago already. I mean, when I say quite a while ago, perhaps a couple of weeks ago. So this, uh, it means that European football is basically going to grind to a halt, uh, certainly at, at, at this kind of level, and uh, that um, the consequences on, on, on the rest of uh, the calendar is uh, are actually, at the moment, I'm, I'm trying to ascertain those because um, you might have heard that there will be uh, a very important meeting, when I say meeting, a virtual meeting, of course, a video conference call, uh, which is organized by UEFA on Tuesday, uh, so 17th of March, uh, to which all 55 member associations uh, are, are invited, as well as the European Club Association, uh, the Association of European Leagues, as, and uh, a representative of FIFPRO, which is uh, the group which uh, unites 63 different global associations of, uh, of professional footballers. And they're, they're very clear. The, the, commun the statement that was put on UEFA's website is... is quite short and, and terse, but the fact that it indicates that um, what will be discussed will be the uh, what's going to happen to national and European competitions, including UEFA Euro 2020, I think we have a pretty good idea of the kind of decisions which are going to be taken and of the huge impact it's going to have, uh, not just in, in the national competitions uh, until the summer, uh, but also in international competitions and uh, beyond 2020 and beyond 2021. Um, I, I know that sounds a bit crazy to say that, but um, I would just be reminded by a friend of mine that if we had a report of the uh, postponement of Euro to 2021, which is um, seemingly something that many people would be in favor of and probably would make an awful lot of sense, that would also have a, a, a huge impact on the calendar of FIFA and notably on the qualifications for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. So we knew, uh, Duncan, that the football calendar was a bit crazy. <laughs> but yes. if we wanted another demonstration of why we play too much football at the moment, I think we're going to have it very, very soon. And the FIFA Club World Cup, the expanded FIFA Club World Cup in oh, you 2021. Can forget about it. Yeah. Is... yeah. I mean, yeah. You can, I, I see you can forget about it, but... Uh, when you look at the dates uh, of this uh, FIFA Club World Cup, which, by the way, is supposed to take, part in, take place in China, uh, we're talking uh, early June to early July 2021, which, of course, would be exactly the time at which uh, a postponed Euro 2021 would take place. And I don't think there's much doubt in anybody's mind as to what the priority would be, uh, given the uh, huge financial implications this, this has uh, the suspension of competition has on UEFA in particular. Well, you say no doubt about what the priority would be, and I think I agree with you what it should be. 
but <laughs> okay. we are in a we are in a position where FIFA are trying to grab control of club football and and this Club World Cup competition is of great importance to Gianni Infantino, who is the president of FIFA and uh, former uh, general secretary of UEFA. So do, do you see Gianni Infantino ceding that space to UEFA without I, a fight? I, I very much doubt it. I think that we, it's been bubbling under for a while and actually before we, we had this uh, pandemic emergency. Uh, there, there is a direct conflict between Gianni um, Infantino's FIFA and actually a number of other confederations. It's not just um, UEFA we're talking about. Uh, UEFA has mm-hmm. actually just signed a, a, a protocol, an agreement with CONMEBOL, uh, the South American Confederation, which is not that important in terms of votes because it's only 10 countries, but it's usually important in terms of what they represent on the, in the global scene. You know, this is, this is Argentina, Peru, Uruguay, Brazil. It's, we're talking about great football nations. And so there's an agreement between the two, which is very much, um, which should be perceived as a kind of alliance against the um, power grabbing uh, of FIFA, what, what they believe is power grabbing. There's also, there are also big tensions between the African Confederation and FIFA ever since FIFA decided basically to take over CAF, the running of CAF, in August uh, 2020, uh, sorry, 2019, and placing Secretary General Fatma Samurai at the head of the Confederation, basically, and, and running the affairs, and then, and then suggesting that, for example, the African Cup of Nations should be held every four years and every two years. So you can imagine that there is, um, the, the background of this is a conflict uh, uh, as to who holds the power within world football. And FIFA has been very, very aggressive in pursuing a, polity, a policy of uh, making the Club World Cup into, I think in their dreams, the uh, premier yeah. world competition in to, for clubs and therefore to, yeah. as a direct competitor to the Champions League. And other, as a way, uh, when I say the Champions League, but also the Copa Libertadores. And also the CONCACAF, um, you know, Champions League, and also the uh, African, the, the CAF Champions League, and the Asian Champions League. So it is very much at the moment. Uh, it's going to be I mean, the consequences are going to be huge, whatever the decisions are. And we think we know what these decisions will be. It is part as well beyond what is the most important, which is the uh, health crisis that we are going through, mm. um, which of course dwarfs everything else. But behind that, there are also people who are vying for a, a position of power uh, within global football and with FIFA pursuing a very aggressive policy. And I think, yes, we, as, as, as you mentioned, as you suggest and mentioned, uh, there will be a frontal affrontment, uh, affrontment between, between the two. Um, and I don't think we can avoid that. It's very sad, I mean, to, that it should come to that. But um, because, again, there, there are far more important things in the world than who's um, top dog in, in the football world, but apparently not for some people. And this, you know, this conflict between UEFA, as you point out, it's about money. It's about access to yep. broadcasting rights. It's mm-hmm. about controlling competitions that will push cash, in this case, into FIFA's coffers and, and allow Gian Infantino in con- control of that and to, um, and hopefully, in his case, retain his position at FIFA. I, I think... You can look at the response of, for example, English authorities to what is happening, um, and they've they kind of been standing against the tide in terms of what is what has happened in other countries. There's been an insistence that uh, they do not want 
first of all to go to closed doors, although that's now shifting, but they didn't want to suspend. And you know, the proposals they put forward um, we're led to believe are things such as moving all all matches behind closed doors, mm. that season ticket holders and ticket holders for individual games will be allowed to stream coverage of matches into their homes, but not all supporters. That clubs will be allowed to sell streams for these these games, so they add another um, uh, revenue uh, source to them. Um, but just a an attempt at all costs to avoid suspending matches, um, which it seems is related to the fact that Premier League do not want um, to risk jeopardising uh, penalty payments on their broadcasting contracts if they are unable to complete the Premier League season. Yeah, um <laughs> To be honest, when you say it like that, Duncan, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say that it is an absolutely despicable attitude to have. Um, uh, if you go beyond the, uh, I mean, because it's basically all about money. Uh, we don't care about anything else. And uh, I'm sure that an awful lot of the people who go to football games and who buy the subscription to uh, British rights holders will have far more financial problems than the Premier League will have in the next uh, few months. Uh, it's pretty obvious to me. Yeah. Um, so it is, yeah, I find it utterly despicable. Um, actually, I think that it, I, I feel really disgusted. I, I think that really queasy when I say that. Um, and I do hope that they will come to the conclusion that they should forget about this idea of uh, trying to find more ways to make money out of a, of a crisis, of a health crisis. Um, and by the way, to be the only league in the world to proceed that way. Uh, doesn't speak yes. voices for the, uh, you know, I don't think we can, I think we've, uh, all our listeners will have understood what we meant and uh, what I meant and what you mean, I think, and uh, probably share, share our opinions in that. Um, for for the, the, the idea that you could somehow carry on like this is, um, I would be tempted to, if you, if you, if you allow me to say so, and it, that might not be to everybody's taste, uh, but I would like people to think about it. It seems to me to participate in um, in, in a very strange idea that has been developed in, in, in Britain, a country which I made my home, you know, nearly 35 years ago now, um, a, a descent into a kind of insularism, which I find absolutely catastrophic um, and which seems that we'll be okay on our own sort of thing. You know, we'll do better than the others. Um, as if you could have this kind of attitude at the moment. But I'm afraid this is the mood in, in part of the country. I don't think it's the majority of people. It's the mood in part of the country, you know, for a few years. I think you could could think of a couple of events which um, have certainly not uh, discouraged people to feel that way. Um, but it, it, and I, I, it's, it's bound to be a failure anyway. I mean, I, I don't genuinely don't think that British football, English football, I don't know. By the way, I was going to ask you, what, what about Scottish football? What? What does the SPL want to do? Um, because I, to be honest, I, 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 I avow uh, my, my ignorance in this matter. I don't know if the SPL is being a little bit more enlightened or... I think, I think the, the problem that Scottish professional football has is there are no cash reserves yeah. to get through this problem. And obviously, a, lar a much larger percentage of revenue in Scotland is dependent on matchday revenue. So in England, obviously, the Premier League teams can, 
I think it averages about one seventh of revenue comes from match day revenue um, mm. in the stadia. So you can afford to go without that. But as you go down the divisions, it gets higher and higher. League one, league two, we were talking about perhaps two thirds of revenue coming on the day. So these clubs are are now threatened, some of them, with their, their future existence. Yeah. Um, and so you're talking about a different degree of, of financial issue there. But that would be valid, by the way, for clubs in the lower divisions in England who also rely on, on gate money more than anything else to, to survive. Yes, yes. and But there is <laughs> the, the attempt to try and continue to produce gate money is one that's doomed to failure for the, you know, the, the reasons. You can look at a statement from the Director General of the World Health Organization made yesterday when he declared pandemic status for coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the first things he said was, um, the World Health Organization has been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we are deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity, and by the alarming levels of inaction. Um, you know, I, I, I'd urge people to go and read what he said because he he does put the the, the level of risk um, in very plain terms, and um, suggests that if we do not move to policies such as social distancing to track and trace and, and, and widespread testing, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. And mm-hmm. here you have the primary sport in Britain um, trying whatever means it can to keep going through something which I don't think it takes much more than common sense to realise that the same is going to happen as happened in Serie A once players refuse to travel into areas where they, they, they feel they're at risk or refuse to become involved in situations where they feel they're at risk, there will be no sport to play. And no. English football's almost there because we have one game cancelled already because Arsenal players, several Arsenal players had to um, go into self-isolation and now we have Leicester City players. It's only a matter of time, sadly, before some players... Um, test positive for coronavirus and then their their teammates are sent as a whole into self-isolation as Real Madrid have been done and that team cannot play games closed doors. So, It's it's, uh, absolutely correct and I I was thinking of uh, uh, a tweet that Kasper Schmeichel posted, I don't know if you saw saw it a bit bit earlier, both in Danish and English, in which he commended the uh, decision taken by the Danish government to uh, suspend all football activities in Denmark, saying this is basically the way we should be going. And if Kasper Schmeichel, who is not exactly uh, um, the the least influential, shall we say, member of the Leicester dressing room is saying that, an awful lot of players are saying that. I was also talking to people at FIFPRO, and they're they're incensed by the complete disregard for for players' safety. And when I say for players' safety, it's also all the people who are employed uh, in those clubs. That, that 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 goes also for the people who work in the canteen, the, the you know everybody, the, the video analysts, everybody. That you know we've got to carry on because uh, there's so much money at stake. But surely um, we're all going to take a hit, and we're all taking a hit already, uh, including ourselves, journalists. Uh, and and not to take a hit because you think you can somehow, because of the nature of football. And heaven knows, Duncan, I've heard some very, very stupid things recently. I mean, you might have seen what happened with the PSG Dortmund game. It was a joke. 
um, and and how people because it is football lose all sense of reason and 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 basically do very very stupid and harmful things, not just for themselves, which would be fair enough, but for everybody else. So, I'm 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 convinced. What well, I, I I want to be convinced that. Uh, it will be taken. I mean, it's been, you know, uh, let's not be completely uh, apocalyptic about it. Uh, a few countries have shown that by being extremely tough on, 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 the, call, on, on the actual um, spread of, of the epidemic, you could actually get some results fairly quickly yes. in a matter of weeks. And, and you see uh, what's happened in New Zealand, for example. I, don't th- I think it's about now five or six days without a single case. Uh, you see what's happened in China. And I, I know that, I mean, from... I, I do some work for, for some Chinese friends in Shanghai, and they explained to me how they were slowly, they said, slowly we, we will get back to normal. You know, we're, we're just starting to open the door a little bit because of what we did, and it was very painful, and um, it's been terrifying for, for hundreds of thousands of people there, millions of people. But they're getting results, and so we should do exactly the same thing. I think, you know, we all agreed on that. Um, uh, when you look at the reaction, for example, of the Italian public to the drastic uh, dis- choices made by the Italian government, I think the uh, uh, approval rate is 89%. <laughs> and these are people you need now. Again, I was talking to a friend who lives in Rome. Uh, you do need a self-certification document uh, issued by the Ministry of the Interior before you can even step out of your own home in Rome. Can you believe that? So, and here we are in England thinking, ah, you know, it's all right. We'll be fine. Something like that, which is an attitude that um, certainly seems to be coming from the top. Indeed. Um, I I think we we have to, I think you've got to look at the people involved again. I think we've got to commend people like Uli Gunnar Solskjaer here, who was asked um, how he would feel if the season had to be cut short. And he said, I would understand, yes, under the circumstances, the main concern must be the health of the general public and the decision that will be made wheel back. Yeah. Um, which I think is the only credible stance that anyone can have. The question, of course, from a football perspective, mm-hmm. once these suspensions are made, is what happens with the leaks? What do we do? Um, you know, we, we've seen the we've seen the Italian Federation discuss various proposals, yeah. and they essentially come down to leaving the leagues as they are. So, uh, determining uh, victory, European qualification, and relegation based on where they stand at present, um, or having playoffs. Mm-hmm. When when to have playoffs? Of course, it becomes a big question. Yep. Um, uh, to determine who wins the title, European qualification and relegation, um, or whether just to restart from scratch and declare this this season as um, null and void. Um, what what's your feeling on that? Because I I I don't see an obvious solution to this. Um, because as you mentioned at the start, the football calendar is so condensed. Um, we're talking about having to cancel Euro 2020, the knock-on effects of that in Euro 2021. Um, where do you get it? How can, how can you do it without to, to, to retain a sense of fair play and uh, 
I think importantly in the way modern football has gone, avoid legal action from clubs who, yeah. for example, would be under one of those proposals would be forcibly demoted from the Premier League when they still have nine games to play and when there are, I think, uh, six teams with uh, at the bottom separated by just eight points at present. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Um, I, I don't Sorry, think... that's a tough question to put. It's a tough, it's a tough I'm question. I'm putting you on the spot I've... here. Yeah, I'm putting me on the spot because, uh, you know, we, I think that's something which is at the back of our minds. And again, I, 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 for example, we, because it, it, it comes to... Um, uh, legal compliance and legal responsibility and and how much you're liable your liability and for example and I will take an example from um, a different sphere of entertainment uh, a friend of mine again you know I mean we keep talking to each other uh, <laughs> uh, like everybody does at the moment uh, is a film producer uh, and was explaining to me that in the current set of affairs the insurance company are absolutely refusing to cover anything, anything. And he says basically the film industry is going to close down for as long as it takes to, uh, to recover. Uh, that's it. It's going to close down because no producer will take on the risk of having, you know, starting a shoot and suddenly mm. you've got to close it down and the insurance won't, won't kick in, which is, you know, that, that's it. So I would imagine what is valid for the movies is also valid for other forms of entertainment. Um, so the, the knockdown effect is, 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 is absolutely huge. Um, I have to say that, I mean, maybe I'm just, I'll be talking because I don't have the answers, Duncan, to if I'm fair, um, if I'm honest with you. Uh, I would think that if you decided to stop the league now and decide that's the end of the season, I think that would be probably the most unfair thing you could possibly do. Uh, that's my immediate reaction as a football fan. I'm thinking, okay, let's postpone, um, you know, we, we have to hope for the best, prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. We can hope that this is going to peak at some point. And then in a month, two months, three months time, we don't know. Things will start to look more normal and it will be possible to have a semblance of competition taking place again, which I think is very much what uh, the, the powers that be are, are thinking of at the moment. And then you can, you know, we suspend the season for a few months. What's the problem? We'll just, it has a knockout. Um, effect on the rest uh, we start by scrapping all the friendlies uh, that won't be a big problem sure. yeah. the Nations League pff, who cares uh, we knock out a couple of competitions which nobody gives up anything about uh, i.e. the League Cup in, in England take it out of the calendar if it's only temporary maybe forever we don't care uh, then uh, same thing uh, replays in FA Cup. Forget about them. I mean, you find you know you you try to think about it and in in a more proactive way. And if it means that Euros got to be postponed to 2021, we have the Euros. And by the way, what a great idea it was to have the Euros being held in 16 different countries, um, for which we thank um, Michel Platini and Gianni Infantino. We should never forget that. Um, so uh, it has a knockdown, a knock-on effect. But the effect will be after a while, you know, it's, it will be, uh, if things go back to normal, we don't know, uh, the effect will be uh, in two years' time, if things go back to normal, we'll also be back to normal in terms of a calendar. It's, 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 um, we've got to think of that as a passing thing, as a genuine test. And I, the idea that somehow you would decide uh, with a play, I mean, as you say, the playoff is completely out of the question because 
where, when, what does it, what does it mean? It's crazy. Um, and, and also the consequences are so life-changing, I was going to say, for some of the, the clubs which are concerned, not just the ones which are going down, but the ones which are going up as well, uh, that you should take this into consideration. I mean, in any other walk of life, Duncan, isn't it what we would be doing? We'd be saying, okay, let's take a deep breath. Let's try and make things, you know, uh, let's try to do things as we should be doing them. It's going to be a tough moment, but we'll get there in the end. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, for me, there's not even a debate to be had about that. I think it's perhaps actually the, it is up to the governments to step in at one point and stop football bloody ridiculing, making itself ridicule again. Um, I don't know. You yes, see, I'm, I'm yes, hesitating I, because I, I, I agree, Philippe, but you have to have a government that's prepared to um, enforce ah, question, yes. the correct actions instead of, as what seemed to happen in that meeting on Monday, was uh, the government asking how much will it cost you to yeah. um, suspend the league because um, we don't want to have to compensate you for that. So uh, let, let's just carry on and hope it will it will all resolve itself. But that's so, absolutely fine because we can spend 75 billion on Trident and, 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 and 100 trillions on HS2. That's absolutely fine. Uh, <laughs> um, I, yes, I wonder, anyway, maybe I, I shouldn't be saying this. I don't know. I, and also we'll I, have Brexit to look forward to, you know, that is going to really help for the supply chain, <laughs> really, really help as well. Good time to try and organise that. Yes, I, I wonder though because given that the 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 best um, the best medical practice seems to be to try and delay the spread as much as possible. Yes, i.e. to extend the duration of um, the outbreak. Um, how many months we're talking about? where we, we simply will not be able to play football, and therefore perhaps the solution becomes. This season is suspended. Mm -hmm. um, it takes six, seven, eight months before we restart. Yeah. And next year is simply the conclusion of this season. And we miss a year of football, effectively. Great that, idea. That... I, uh, great idea. I, I, you've got my vote, Duncan. You've just convinced me that was the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, depending, and vote... on, depending on events. You know, again, depending on events. Because of course. Uh, we, we genuinely haven't got... There are so many questions which are unanswered at the moment. At the moment, we've just got to take the precautions to make things as least bad as possible for, for, for everybody. This priority, that's the only priority. And, but it might be that, you know, you don't want to be catastrophist about everything, you know, end of days and, and so forth. And you might think, okay, it could be as well with uh, the temperatures going up, uh, which is not supposed to be very good for a virus. We have, it sort of weekends that... Uh, Scientists are working around the clock over all the globe, and it's an extraordinary response for the scientific community, and completely open, by the way, where all results are shared on open source, you know, websites and 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 uh, and forums and so on. So people are working day in day out to try and find vaccine, uh, to try and find a cure, uh, because we haven't got one at the moment. And you can hope you think, okay, at some point, we're going to crack this, and you just got to be. <laughs> You know, take take it on the chin as much as you possibly can, and make sure the most fragile and and vulnerable people amongst us are not the ones who take it, but full between the eyes. That's the only thing which matters. The rest, honestly, it's obscene to even talk about it. And 
you know, whatever our love of football is and the fact that we're really genuinely pissed off by the fact that uh, we might not see a football uh, for a while. And that also that, my dear Duncan, it will also have an effect on, on, on the livelihood of people like you and me, um, surely. Uh, so, uh, but there are people who are far worse off than we are. Um, so your, your solution, I think, is very tempted, very, very tempting. While we still have some top-level football to talk about in our <laughs> recent memory, let's talk about one of the teams who will be desperate that, um, that this season isn't cancelled, um, yeah. Liverpool, who yeah. um, I think everyone can agree uh, deserve to be crowned champions um, yep. for the first time in 30 years for what they've done in this Premier League season. And it would be horrendously unfair if, if they were to be deprived of that. But who have now lost... Um, their European title um, and lost it after a 3-2 defeat at home um, their first loss in 6 years and 26 European matches at Anfield end of a 42 game Anfield unbeaten run they've lost 4 of the last 6 matches in total um, have you been surprised by this <sighs> rapid decline in results Maybe it's not such a rapid decline in performances, but certainly a rapid decline in results that we've seen from Liverpool. I'm going to be very counterintuitive about this, if that's okay with you. And I'm sure knowing you, that's perfectly okay with you. We love um, counterintuitive in this podcast, Absolutely. I was absolutely slaughtered uh, a few weeks ago when I went on Twitter, which is you know, obviously quite a normal occurrence when you go on Twitter and you talk about things <laughs> which relate to Liverpool Football Club. Uh, whatever my admiration for, for this club and, and for its manager and for their players has been. And I said, the one thing, and this was before the series started, I said, one thing we've got to keep in mind is how, how much luck Liverpool had in this fantastic run. And people said, what? You know, what are you talking about luck? There's nothing about Like I said, well, no, no, wait a minute. You've got to understand you make your own luck. You know, you deserve your own luck. It's the, the old cliche, you know, the more I practice the luckier I get and so forth. But it's true that what had struck me this season is how many uh, games I saw from Liverpool and I saw in the stadium when we could still go to football matches where I felt, my goodness, this is on the razor wire, this one. It really could be, you know, they could lose today. I felt that, for example, when Chelsea played, when they played at Chelsea, uh, people would say, well, you're crazy. And I said, no, second half, they were really under the cosh. They, they rode their luck. And, and fortunate for them, they were against a Chelsea that was not, perhaps at top level and perhaps like a couple of players in the, which could really make a difference in the last 30 years and things like that. And there have been numerous examples of that. So my, my take on it was not to diminish the merit of Liverpool, but quite the opposite. To say that actually their margin of security was not as big as people thought. That the, yes, mm. they were incredibly clinical, notably on counter-attacks. That they had this extraordinary capacity to find physical and mental resources late in the games, which honestly were admirable and, and uh, showed also that there was something inhabiting a spirit within that team that was quite unique and which explains why they are in the position they are in now. On the other hand, they have never dominated the, the league in terms of the games, as, for example, Manchester City did in the previous two seasons. Never. And I, I know that maybe that's a bit, uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to sound sacrilegious, because in my book, that is not actually something I hold against Liverpool. It's something that makes me admire what they've done even more. So my point was that at some point, 
the luck which you earn is might just not be there. You know, you might not get that decision. You might have the ball coming in or sort of coming out when it hits the post. So all these sort of things, which you know, the, 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 the chance element in football is absolutely crucial. It's perhaps of all the elements which decide of a, the fate of a game between two balanced teams is the one that which matters the most. It's not tactics, it's pure down luck. And they, I think they come to a point when they, they were also showing signs of perhaps mental fatigue. Um, I think we shouldn't underestimate whatever Jürgen Klopp said, that there was this huge albatross around their neck, can they go through a whole season undefeated? Yeah. Uh, which is something when you talk to Wenger about it, who did it, and Arsene will tell you, the, the hardest games in that season were the last six games. When, when we knew we had the title wrapped up and we, we had to carry on, we, we knew the title was ours. But to find the resources to win those games, my goodness, it was incredibly difficult. And in a way, that's what's happened. Uh, against Atletico, I think that as well, I was probably just, just like you, or you were probably just like me, surprised by the quality of the performance of Atletico in both legs because this is genuinely not the Atletico I've seen in La Liga this season. It's different. It, 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 it had this element about it of, of fearlessness and, and fight uh, of Simeone as absolute best. Uh, if, by the way, the competition carries on, I wouldn't bet on them going through the next round. I think they will have left so much in, this, in those two ties. Crazy in this, in this tie, obviously crazy. And, and it, you're allowed... Um, and, and Liverpool were actually better and again I'm counterintuitive in terms of the performance I, f I think they were good in Madrid they considered this stupid goal we changed everything but they were good afterwards in difficult circumstances and they weren't bad at Anfield there was one point they were through and then something happens Alisson is not around it changes everything and but do you, do you get my, you know, this is what well, I... yeah, I, absolutely. Is, I, I, I agree I, with I, you. I agree yeah. with you. And I think, you, you know, a famous Champions League manager talks about Champions League and winning the Champions League being down to the fine details. Mm -hmm. And after you've won the Champions League, as Liverpool did last season, it can seem like you were destined to do it and you were the best team. But actually, in most Champions League, there's probably four or five teams that could mm -hmm. get it if the fine details go their way. And last night we saw Atletico scoring a goal after, I think it was when Aldum was um, tackled in the kind of way a Liverpool player often tackles at Anfield and uh, isn't penalised for, very aggressive tackling. The referee decides not to give it. Um, Firmino then um, has another hefty challenge and goes down in the box in the kind of incident we often see Liverpool getting penalties for. I don't mm -hmm. think it was a foul. But there were two marginal decisions there went against Liverpool that left Atletico 3-3. Three and three. They score a goal, tie over. Fine yeah. details. So I, I agree entirely with you in that, that analysis. Well, thank you, because not many people do. <laughs> or, maybe they, or maybe they will do now, because I, this is something I was talking about a few weeks ago. And when I felt that we were giving too much praise to Liverpool, and, but not the right kind of praise. Because what, it's, it's like, you know, the people who, when, when Lionel Messi, for some reason, doesn't score uh, in, in two, two games on the trot, and, and you tell them, well, what he does is so astonishingly out of this world, or Cristiano, uh, out of this world, that we, we've lost all 
measure when it comes to judging the quality of the performances and what he's producing. And, and Liverpool have made something which is honestly astonishing, which, by the way, I'm not too sure that any other team is going to, what was it, 105 out of 108 points or something like that? I'm not sure it's ever going to be done again because there are so many elements which mm. you need to get right for that. You need to be very lucky with injuries, for example, uh, which is yeah. a crucial part of it. You will need this um, also when you win all these games. Obviously, the, the teams you play against, they don't play against you as a team. They play against your reputation. And how many yeah. times have we seen that? You know, that was valid for that was valid, by the way, for Manchester City or Manchester United or Arsenal or Chelsea in this in this country. Absolutely, or the Liverpool of old. Um, and and it's it might be that when you know teams feel that there is just a slight element of fatigue or I, I don't know the, the mental pressure these players must have been under for so long now. I'm sure there's one moment you pay for it, but uh, it would be honestly, I, I know that some Everton fans will uh, completely disagree with me, but it would be a travesty if Liverpool were not crowd champion of 2019-2020. It is their title. Uh, they deserve it. They merit it completely. Absolutely. I think another element here is, and we did a, quite a long section of the podcast on this after Watford um, beat Liverpool is that it took a team to actually go and look at the strengths of Liverpool, which has been the fullbacks um, and the, their creativity, and say, "Well, that's a weakness too." Uh, and and I know from the the discussions we've had with Kevin Affleck, who's sort of based in the, the Watford camp, that Nigel Pearson went into that match very confident. He had a plan to take advantage of Alexander Arnold and, and Robertson's high position on the field and mm. play the ball. It's not a very complex thing, but play the ball quickly into those spaces for fast forwards to exploit and 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 create chances. And I think all, often in football, it takes a team to forget about the reputation and mm. come up with a strategy and show the other teams a way of beating them. And that doesn't mean that you're going to beat them on a regular basis, but it, you you do have a, a strategy for them and it which can, be they can apply, yeah. it, it which can be has psychological impact on the coach, on the players of the team that had got used to winning game after game after game. And, and I think it can be a fairly basic kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And that's not a problem. Uh, I mean, why do you think that, for example, uh, my old chum, Roy Hodgson, uh, has had so much success against Pep Guardiola with a team, which honestly, <laughs> Crystal <laughs> Palace, <laughs> hello. Um, and, and, and the results he got against them, actually the best of which was, I think, the nil-nil draw at, Christ at Selhurst Park, in which... Um, uh, uh, what's his name again? Uh, Milivojevic missed a penalty in the last second almost. But it was a, a, an object lesson. How do you hurt Manchester City? And actually Manchester City in their pomp. How do you hurt them? And it was very basic. But it was very, very well executed. And, and also he had players who utterly believed, I think, every single um, indication that he'd given them. Just the same way. I mean, to be honest, uh, I mean, this performance by Watford was just, what can you say? One of the performances of the season, certainly, if not the performance of the season in terms of intensity. In intensity. And after losing De Lufeu as well, such a creative player. But I, I, I agree with you. And, and this is another thing I was talking about when people were raving about, particularly Andy Robertson. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold is such a, 
a, a different kind of player and he's such a creative player. Um, everybody's been talking about the fact that he's the first right back to be a playmaker, um, which maybe he is. Since, since, since Danny Alves. Since Daniel, yeah, since since Daniel Vessin's absolute pomp, um, and 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 uh, and Alexander Arnold is, you know, he's still a baby anyway, and he's he's going to be a frightening player anyway, because he's going to learn. But Robertson, I often thought, your positioning is wow, um, and a lot of it depends on the ability of your uh, midfielders to compensate this. And, and to do this trick, which is one thing, I, I'd love to have a chat with you or, and, you know, about this at a later stage because it's, it's a tactical shift. And again, I've been taken to task on Twitter about that, about one of the midfielders becoming left back, which is something that happened from time to time, just naturally, uh, but which I think has become now systematic at, at an, in a number of teams. And when you have some if, – if, especially when you have positioning that high on the pitch, but like people like Robertson – who as well, even though he's incredibly generous in the tackle and in his dynamic and so forth, is not necessarily the most um, disciplined, shall we say. And, and there are in, both in terms of positioning and also of, of sometimes some of his choices are risky, which is fine, by the way. It's, it's part of his game. But he needs to have somebody who is going to cover that left-back position. And it would be uh, Wijnaldum. Uh, sometimes Henderson would do the same thing for Alexander Arnold on the right-hand side. And when suddenly it's not clicking as it should be clicking uh, because of the level of intensity that is part of, of Klopp's, you know, set up. Wow. Suddenly you think, well, there's an area I could exploit here. And it's not that complicated. It's actually if you're being quite um, basic, you say, oh, you're playing down the channels. I mean, I, I know it's crazy, uh, but, but it's... Why not? I mean, the people, you know, I've, I've seen Michael Cox talking about the rebirth of 235, which is something, you know, yeah, absolutely, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with him. Why shouldn't that pay off? Um, why this kind of attitude provided, you know, by the way, you've got the players with the right mental attitude, also the right uh, ability, because, you know, we're talking about Watford. I have to remember they've got a couple of serious players in that team. I mean, they're not exactly, uh, when you think of Abdoulaye Ducouré, and Ismail Esar, even if he's very raw, raw. and Etienne Capu when he's really good. Uh, they, they've got some, some excellent players in there. But, um, yeah, I, I, but we coming, coming back to Liverpool, they, they've, they've shown they, – they, they're a strange team anyway, Duncan, because when you look at them, when, when they're in possession, they certainly are not the most watchable of all teams. I mean, I prefer to watch Wolves in possession than Liverpool. I mean, am I again being sacrilegious here? I think they're fantastic in unbalanced situations where they are yes. an ex extraordinary thrill. I mean, they're thrilling to watch in those conditions. Yeah. But when it comes to playing in possession from the back and so forth, they do not quite have – they have dynamism. They've got uh, power. They've got um, some exceptional players. They've, the the risk-taking is fantastic, but – it can also be quite sterile at times. And um, unless somebody does something from right back position. And again, we come back to what you were saying about somebody who'd done the homework. It was Nigel Pearson and uh, who exploited that and, and also had, you know, um, luck on his side as well on, on, on the day because 
we've forgotten that Liverpool were on top in many, many, uh, for many, many minutes in that particular game, but they didn't manage to make it count. So, yeah, but it's, it's a fascinating one, it, I think. I, I think it, it, it's one of, one of the many beauties of football is there is no one way of playing mm. that can dominate indefinitely against everyone. Uh, even before you add in the psychological difficulties of continuing at the same level season after season. There's yeah. always a way of breaking it down. There's always a new invention. But in, in that light, I mean, Philippe, you've been covering English football for almost three decades, almost yeah. as long as it's been since Liverpool have won the English title. <laughs> well, that was cruel. Where, yes. um, where, <laughs> where, do they, where do they stand in the pantheon, this Liverpool team, where does it stand in the pantheon of English teams that you've had the uh, privilege to report on in those three decades? Uh, if you think in terms of the domination, I've seen more dominating teams. I, I spoke about Manchester City. Yeah. I could speak about uh, the Chelsea of 2005-2006, which was frightening. Uh, I mean, 2004-5, which was a frightening team. I would, strangely enough, choose the Arsenal of 2001-2002 over the 2003-2004, which might surprise a few people, but um, perhaps for aesthetic reasons, but I would put them very, very high indeed, particularly because of, of the, the incredible um, capacity they had to play away from home and to impose a style of play which was just magical to watch. Honestly, it was one of the most beautiful teams I've, I've ever watched. Uh, I would certainly put some of... Uh, uh, Alex Ferguson's um, teams in there, even though I would be hard, you know, again, I would find it hard to find a season. And maybe you can help me there because people would always go for 1998-1999. Well, guys, okay, never should have won that Champions League final. Never, never. That, that's, that's, a fluke. that's a fluke. The uh, FA Cup, it all is about a missed penalty by Dennis Bergkamp, if I'm not mistaken. And again, it could have gone the other way. Then there is the league where they were, okay, they were, they were very, very good in the league, but they were not miles, uh, you know, in front of everybody else. But you could say that perhaps uh, teams which came later, maybe the 2007, 2008 team was in terms of uh, the quality, perhaps superior. And where would I put Liverpool in there? I would be, if I were to be judge them both nationally and internationally over the past two seasons, I would probably put there on top. <laughs> I, it's, I know, I know. Uh, it, it, it's for, <laughs> for I, I know, I know, because it depends on the criteria you choose. If you choose in terms of domination and a team that you know is going to win, 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 then I yes. think that the first Chelsea of Jose Mourinho and the, and the Manchester City of the two seasons before this one of Pep Guardiola are, well, they were the best. And uh, there was no discussion. In terms of aesthetics, I think that Arsene Wenger's team were superior. In terms of capacity of reinvention and of ability to win and win and win, that would be Alex Ferguson's Manchester United teams. But in terms of what's been achieved and knowing where they were starting from, the type of players that they used, the amount of money they invested, how the team was built, and so on, and also the symbolic value of it, I think that you know, this quite extraordinary thing to be able to play you play three European finals on the trot 
um, you finished second to one of the great teams, all-time great teams in, in English football history. And, and just because of what? 11 millimeters a goal, you know, and, and, and a red card away, a red card that wasn't given away from, from that. And, and then you should be champions uh, with an absolutely astonishing advance on teams which have con- haven't got much less uh, in terms of economics and actually are in front of you in terms of economic terms. I mean, Manchester United is richer. Uh, Manchester City is richer. And, and you still do it. And, and also the thrilling, you know, the thrill it's been because it's been rocking, I mean, from the beginning. Uh, and that is also an important part. So that's why I would put them on top uh, of those I've, I've seen. I so hope you, this makes you, sense. I well, you've certainly, you've certainly made up for your sacrilegious statements earlier if the Liverpool members of our audience have, have got to the end of this conversation. You will maybe, be forgiven. I, I, hope, I hope they haven't switched off and thought, oh, who's that French prat talking about, <laughs> you know, <laughs> our beloved Liverpool. Um, but, you know, they, they, you've, got to, you've got to head it out to them in terms of... It also, also what is around the team. I think there's also a dimension which is almost like metaphobolistic. Uh, and also what Klopp has brought to English football, and you know, which is quite quite extraordinary, really. Um, and and even though even though, and I don't know if you would agree with me, this is probably the weakest Premier League I can remember in quite a while. Yes, so that would be my caveat: is the the what they've had to play against this season. Mm. Um, where, where you have several of the, the, the big six, as they are still called, um, not even yeah. in the top six. Of these teams, which are currently supposed to be top six teams, I mean, the teams which have done better than we expected, both in terms of play and, 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 and results, are Leicester and Wolves. And that's that. I mean, I'm sorry, that's that. They, they've done better than we expected. And um, I think Wolves in particular would, would have a good chance of being, you know, one of my teams of the season. Well, Which again, Sheffield it might be United. sacrilegious. Sheffield, Sheff- and Sheffield, Sheffield United, I'm terribly sorry. I, and, and Sheffield United, I'm, I'm really sorry not to say that because it's probably the, the, the first name that should have come through my lips would have been Sheffield United because what they are doing is just phenomenal. And again, I, you see, if we stop the clock right now, Sheffield United would just miss out, wouldn't they? they would. That would be cruel. That would uh, be cruel. With- um, yes, they would. They have a game in hand on, on Manchester United and would be fifths if they win that. Exactly. Let's talk about one of those other big six teams, Tottenham Hotspur. Um, six games without a win. Currently eighth in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Uh, they play Manchester United on Sunday. Um, another opportunity for Solskjaer uh, to defeat another of the uh, of the big name managers, yep. Um, they've gone out of two competitions in a week and have no chance of winning anything again this season. Yep. Question I have for you: Did Daniel Levy make a mistake in hiring Jose Mourinho? Huh. Oh, did they both make a mistake? <laughs> um, it's it's an open question. Um, I personally like many other people, was staggered when he, he, he chose Jose Mourinho. Um, 
because I couldn't understand what was the logic behind it. I mean, I can understand, I could understand some of the, the reasons behind uh, the removal of Mauricio Pochettino, which, by the way, might not be reasons which had to do with Mauricio Pochettino, but the lack of support he had from his own club uh, and the fact that they didn't realize quickly enough or that a, a team that is successful has got to be changed and evolve, otherwise it stops being successful. I mean, that's the number one recipe for disaster is not to change things. And so things went the way they went, as we know. But I thought this is really strange because you're going for a solution, um, which is basically what you want is a, a manager who is a proven winner of trophies. I, I, that I can understand. But I'm also thinking, you know, you've been spending the last, what, three, four years building a kind of playing project um, by which uh, everybody at the club, and I include it was the youth team, the academy teams, the coaches with the, with the youngsters were building towards a certain style of play, which makes complete sense to, to everybody, I think. And suddenly you bring in somebody who has got very little in common, if anything, in common with his predecessor. And, and, and you're asking him as well to do a job and we know he can do this kind of job, but with a team that honestly is not really built to his strength either. So which is why I said I'm a bit surprised by, uh, by both, um, because I don't think, you know, I mean, if I look at the squad at the moment, and I'm not even thinking about the, um, the injuries, which have been, you know, very, very bad. But there are a number of players there who are just not adapted to the kind of, of game that Mourinho would want to, to, to play. And he must have known that. He knew those players. He, he spent a lot of time looking at them. So uh, it's, uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's a marriage made in heaven. I, I don't quite understand what the logic behind it was. Um, and uh, I'm afraid that what we're seeing at the moment is not necessarily going to get better. I mean, maybe, you know, the suspension of competitions is going to be good news for Tottenham Hotspur because the way it was going, I mean, uh, you're, you're asking yourself questions. You, you think, well, there have been, you know, uh, uh, the, the unavailability of players is one thing, but there are an awful lot of players there who are not pulling their weight. Uh, there, uh, there are players who look past their prime. There are players who don't look absolutely convinced by what they're asked to do. Uh, then you've got Serge Aurier, who is like a poem in himself, you know. I mean, it's just extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that wonderful header for... Uh, uh, which is a, like a, the pre-assist for RB Leipzig was there. Is the kind of thing that honestly, they, what on earth are you trying to do? If you'd actually let the ball go past, it would have had the same consequences. But anyway, that's Serge for you, who can look fantastic one day and absolutely rubbish the next. That's him. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you're, you know, obviously, you know, Jose Mourinho far better than I do. I, I, I don't think it's a fit that works. I, I cannot see how it can work in the near future if we think that football is going to resume we've got to take this hypothesis and when you're basically lacking any cover at center forward when your central defenders are aging or perhaps not good enough uh, where you have real problems on both at left back and right back which is not new um, where you're missing a player like uh, uh, Dembele used to be for Tottenham, 
don't know if you agree with me yeah. on that, with this, Duncan, because I thought that Dembele, when he was in his pomp, was absolutely crucial to what we saw from Pochettino's Tottenham. He, he had something different from the others. He was able to, you know, to do line breaks like they talk about rugby, you know. He, he could do yes. that. He had this fantastic driving ability with both feet. He, he had a great shot on him. He was physically imposing. And I cannot see any player who's got that. I mean, Lo Celso is a super player. I really, really rate him like everybody else. But I don't think he's quite got the same aura around him. Maybe it will develop that way, but he doesn't have it at the moment as Dembele had it. And also, it's, it's the complementarity of, of the various elements. And regardless of the, of the injuries at the moment, the, um, it seems to me not the, not the best balance of squads in terms of age or qualities. And especially with looking at the season ahead of us because you know the team was built around for example Jan Vertonghen and, and Tobiel de Weireld for a long time and that's over right we agree on that it's finished um, yeah I, I, I agree with you Moussa Dembele I think there, obviously Moussa um, played with for a long time where he was limited in his game time, but it was very obvious that Pochettino would put him in the side whenever he could for the more important games because he was the key man in midfield. So that's one loss. Obviously, the squad's unbalanced. Obviously, they've got lots of injuries. You talk about Mourinho making mistake. Absolutely, Mourinho felt this was a club he wanted to go to. He was excited about the squad and he felt um, it, was a, it was a team he could do things with and he had plans to change the way they played, which I think we saw early on. You mentioned that, um, that, that, that uh, tactical system of trying to build, put five attackers mm-hmm. um, in play. That, that was something he implemented early on to, with a degree of success, but it's, it's gone badly wrong. And you've stolen my line in saying that this is a club and a manager who would, I think, love to see the season suspended. <laughs> um, but let, let, let me ask you, as, as a French journalist, about whether there was another mistake made with Tanguy and Dombelli. Um, ah, oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Um, I, I, I don't think, I mean, the, the, I, I genuinely think there was a mistake by, by Mourinho in the comments, by the way, um, regardless of the fact that he had to go, you know, at halftime, that, which I yeah. think not many people would disagree with. <laughs> Uh, he hadn't been particularly good, but then uh, the rest is, you know, whatever. I don't know. I don't think it was a particularly clever move. Uh, it might be a frustration as well, but it wouldn't be the first time that people are frustrated with Tonkin Dombele because you can see the, the talent of the player. Um, you can see the potential there. He's still very young and very raw. And also you have got to th- keep in mind he comes from, you know, Olympique Lyonnais and which is not a, a, which is a club which has been going through its own problems and you know over the past few years um, keeps producing wonderful players but not necessarily best armed perhaps in the kind of environment that he finds himself in right now. Um, I mean he is potentially a, a, a super player. Can you build a midfield around him? Not yet, and that's a problem. Because where he plays, you would expect him to be to be bossing this area, this zone, and he he's not going to be able to do that at the moment, I'm afraid. But he's got things about him. I mean, he he yeah. has an eye for a pass. He is uh, again, he can be quick. He's he's a decent finisher, by the way. He can score a few goals. Yeah. Um, he's still very very young. Um, 
it can be one of those things, you know, one of those graphs which don't take. It does happen. There, there have been plenty of players of great talent where it's never quite happened, you know. Uh, it, it, where, it, it, is it the uh, the league? Is it the club? Is it the manager? Is it a bit of both? A bit of everything? I don't know. But I didn't think, I thought they made a really good acquisition. I didn't think that they made the kind of acquisition that they could build a team around, if you see what I mean. It's like, for example, yes. when you see, when you see, and, and, and I'm going to be cruel, the comparison is cruel. When you see what's happening with Bruno Fernandes in Manchester United, uh, I think you could see it coming a bit because Bruno Fernandes had already a quite phenomenal record uh, in in a league that is not as rubbish as people think it is. Um, and you could see immediately, yep, okay, fine, you can build a team around that guy. Uh, you, you genuinely can. He's, and he's got that kind of temperament as well. Around yeah. Tiggy Dombele? I don't think so. Let's move to a club that's... Um closest to your heart um, mm-hmm. I think that's fair to say a club yeah, that took yeah, the yeah. opposite route to Daniel Levy um, <laughs> they didn't go for the experienced trophy winner they went for the inexperienced mm-hmm. uh, man they thought can turn into a trophy winner in Arsenal appointing Mikel Arteta yeah. um, what is your view of how that has worked out for them and I, mm-hmm. do you see this as being the answer to reinstating them at the top end of the, the Premier League. Okay, I'll answer the second part of the question first. No, I don't think that's the case. I think the the, the, the problem, I mean, the problem uh, with reinstating Arsenal as a contender for the title or at least for a Champions League place and a genuine contender for, let's say, top three, uh, is something which has to do with the club's structure and, and the people who are in charge of the club. I don't necessarily think that the current ownership model is one which benefits the club greatly. I don't think that some of the decisions which are being made are made... Um, as they should be, and, and it's a completely different kind of governance model, so if I can use that. Uh, so I, and I think the real problem of Arsenal lies there more than in the personal they employ. And now if I go to Mikel Arteta, I wasn't convinced at all at the beginning, I must say, um, that he would fit in as he has fitted in. And But he's impressed me. And again, I'm going to be a bit counterintuitive here. What has impressed me is that people... Th- saw him coming from his assistant job at Manchester City where he's playing with a manager who is a bit of a fundamentalist when it comes to the way he wants his teams to play and somebody who lives in a kind of world of his own invention. And you think, well, maybe maybe that's going to be the case uh, and with that kind of team, I'm not sure it's going to work. But what is shown since he's been in place is that he's first and foremost like he was as a player, a pragmatist, choosing with an eye for the right pass, the, the, an eye for the moment to do the, you know, who to, to, to send it for. You know, sometimes it's just laterally, sometimes backwards, sometimes it's an assist. And he has the same qualities as a manager. Uh, he's also very outspoken, uh, which I think has given people after the, um, honestly, Unai Emery, whatever his qualities are, and he has genuine qualities, was not the best of communicators. It was great for for Arsenal to have a manager who can actually express himself like Mikel Arteta quite clearly does, quite frankly. I mean, him, he's very frank in his assessment of what his teams do and with his players. He's not obviously afraid to take some pretty tough decisions. I see the way he's handled Matteo Genduzzi, I think has been a, an illustration of that. 
Um, and also, he's got a knack of winning games he shouldn't be winning, um, which is something that Arsenal certainly had been missing for quite a while. So you can see, you could see from the beginning what kind of football he wanted his teams to play. You, you have a very clear idea. You have a clear idea of how he wants to involve products from the academy and the moments as well when he's going to decide, no, it's not their time. Most of the gambles he's made have paid off. They haven't been, you know, he, he has to deal with also, we talk about injuries. Arsenal have been absolutely riddled with injuries, particularly at the back, for God knows how long. And actually that was a, a crucial factor in the fact that everything's, you know, just went wrong for Unai Emery. Uh, every time you, you, people seem to have found a kind of balance, um, it just went because somebody had done a cruciate or, or something like that. Um, he's made some players whom, honestly, people had given up on, like Shoran Mustafi. He, he's made them look like players again. Um, he's managed... Um, I've, the, the results have been improving. It's not brilliant. But I would say, and I, I use that with my, my friend Andrew Mangan of, of Ars Blogger. He's done one thing. He, he came to the, the bedside of a sick patient and he stabilized it. And now we're starting to see the recovery. So for all these reasons, and despite the fact that, believe me, the game against West Ham the other weekend was dire. It was awful. Um, despite all that, I think... It's working. And I think people are quite willing, certainly if I talk to the supporters, they're quite willing to give him quite a bit of time because they think, yeah, it's not just that he's one of us. It's also because he seems to have this pragmatic approach to, again, like Tottenham, an unbalanced team um, which has got some older players, younger players, which has got Mesut Ozil, which is the enigma within the riddle, within everything else. And he is managing to make this team look okay actually uh, on some occasions uh, so yeah um, globally positive if not very positive Duncan so what would be a realistic target for him whenever we have the next season of, of Premier League football and I will the Arsenal supporters be happy with meeting that realistic target I think the realistic target is to finish top six uh, and if possible uh, you know hoping for um the the spate of injuries to to calm down and also we, there there is definitely quite a lot of um, effort to be made in terms of the recruitment. I'm I'm not saying that it's a it's it's not a bad squad. It's just that it's it's unbalanced and also it's unbalanced in terms of age because there are some players there whom I think are extremely promising. I'm I'm an absolute fan of Gabriel Martinelli, for example. I absolutely love this player, but he's he's not even twenty. Uh, I do have a lot of time for Kieran Tierney, but unfortunately he's been very fragile and injured most of the time. Um, and and I, I I do have a great deal of time for Lucas Torreira, who again has been injured. And you think, well, give him time. And there are, there are going to be some very big decisions to be made uh, when it comes to the future of Alex Lacazette, when it comes to the future of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, for example. Uh, there is no doubt that uh, perhaps reinforcements are needed in central defence. Um, and also, there is the Shaka problem. Um, I don't have much hair left, but neither do you, by the way. And uh, but I think that, <laughs> but I think that uh, watching Granit Xhaka is one of the most frustrating things, exercises for any fan. Um, if you happen to be a fan of his team, that, that there are times you think, oh, I understand why people rate him so highly, and and there are other times you just want to uh, to jump on him and and 
kick him out of the ground. And, and it's, uh, it's all these things which he's got to sort out. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the most important thing, Duncan, is that when you go to the ground, or, you know, when we go to the ground again, and, and that you go with a spring in your step and that you, you're not there to have a miserable time, which is what Arsenal supporters have been doing for quite a while. And it's no longer the case. And that's, that's for me, the most important thing. That people are having fun. So, um, so watching Dundee United must be worse for your hairline than watching <laughs> Arsenal. But um, <laughs> well, let's, let's wrap this up with um, a very quick, quick fire round. And I want to ask okay. you, Philippe, um, since we're talking about what might be the end of the Premier League season mm-hmm. very soon, who would you choose as your player of this abbreviated Premier League season? Oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, well, normally, it would be a Liverpool player. Um, yeah. You would think it would have to be. And if it had to be, I think, that sometimes you understand more how important he is when he's not around. And I would say, amazingly enough, I think Jordan Henderson is a good candidate. He's absolutely stunned me and many other people. We didn't think that he was as good a player as he is. And also in a team that depends so much on mental energy and and dynamism is so important. But, and this is where the counterintuitive bit kicks in, I will change that. I will say, who is the player who's given me the most pleasure this season? Is that okay to do that? Mm, very good. Okay. And it's Raul Jimenez of Wolves. Ah. I, I absolutely adore him. I love everything about him. I love his subtlety. I love his elegance. I love his efficiency. I love the fact that he's completely proved me completely, utterly wrong because I didn't think he had it in him. Because he's a great link-up player, he scores some magnificent goals, his movement is, is superb, such intelligence. He was a fabulous buy. I absolutely love him. And he's Mexican. So there, there are all these reasons um, I will go for. He was my first name when I, I was doing my 11th of the, of the year. And okay. I, obviously, there were loads of Liverpool players in there. There were also a couple. I mean, Adam Atrari was there too um, on, on, on the right wing. And, but Raul Jimenez, because of the pleasure he gave me uh, week in, week out, uh, is perhaps not the most obvious of all skills, what he's got, but I think for me, he's an artist. He's a genuine artist, somebody who would have shone and I think would be able to shine in almost any other context, any other time, any other era. He's, he's a super player. Is yes. This, would yeah, you... I, 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 I like that choice, and I think, um, I think it's going to be very interesting this summer because it's at a stage where Raúl Jiménez is looking to move. If yep. the opportunity comes along, I think Wolves are at a stage where they're ready to cash in if a big offer comes. I know Manchester United are um, are interested and have inquired about the player, and he's one of a number of players on their shortlist for the position. But mm-hmm. you wonder what would happen if he was to, to move to one of the real top teams in Europe um, because of the qualities he has and, and, and what we could see from, from that player that you've just described. Um, I'll choose my player of the abbreviated season and I'm going to go for um, Dermot Gallagher um, because I don't think there's been an individual who's been more loyal to the cause and more consistent in his performance 
um, after Premier League matches, and and he's involved in virtually every Premier League match to to give the uh, the official PGMOL line as to why every refereeing decision was correct and every VAR decision was correct. I don't think anyone has has put in more work and be more loyal to the cause than Dermot Gallagher. So he gets my player of the abbreviated season. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Philippe. That Thank was you, a, Duncan. a pleasure. Okay, my we, pleasure, we Duncan. Shall, um, we shall try and get you back on the podcast in the future to talk about Qatar and nation states and many of the other subjects that you've broken. I think um, we will have plenty of... Uh, yeah, and, and there, there are more to come, by the way, uh, Duncan, in the next uh, few weeks uh, from both Josimar and also I'm doing some work at the BBC at the moment, but we can come back to that uh, at a later stage. There's plenty to talk about. And and it might be a, a great time, you know, when there is no football being played. Well, we can still talk about football. There are plenty of things to talk about in football. That's it for this week's Transfer Window. You can continue the debate on Twitter with me, at Duncan Castles, and with Philippe, who is at Philippe Auclair. Um, the Transfer Window is also on Instagram, um, at Transfer Podcast. I'm on Instagram at Duncan.Castles. Um, we are also on Facebook at Transfer Podcast and we now have a fledgling YouTube channel, The Transfer Window. If you like what you heard, please listen to some more episodes of The Transfer Window. There are hundreds of them there. They're all available, iTunes or whoever your podcast supplier is. And then recommend us to your friends and review us on iTunes. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week through The Transfer Window. Hey.